My next guest, my first guest this hour, uh, just, I mean, almost literally just got off the plane. I'm sure he is still jet-lagged. He is. Uh, he had traveled far parts of the world visiting Morocco and Gibraltar and Spain, and I don't even know where else he all went, but uh, we did not want to let Marvin Ryder get too rusty so we brought him back on as quickly as he poss- as we possibly could when he got back from his trip. Uh, Marvin, welcome back. Hola. <laughs> Hola to you as well. How how was Morocco and Gibraltar and Tangier and Spain? Well, it was it was lovely and warm. I can tell you the the daytime temperatures in some of those cities got up to nearly forty degrees Celsius. I don't know if you'd want to go visit them in July and August, but a lot of history in that area. Uh, obviously, the Catholic. Uh, kings and queens that Spain had over the years. They all loved building churches and just some magnificent, magnificent architecture over there. What's, uh, which was the best spot and which was the least best spot? Well, I was probably most disappointed in Tangier. I guess uh, one of the big differences, Morocco didn't have those kinds of kings and queens who liked to build these big edifices. So there wasn't the same sort of historical architecture. It was interesting because it was a different culture and there's food and that sort of thing. But in terms of seeing big spectacular things um, on the other side of the coin obviously going to Gibraltar you've got a natural resource this big mountain just on the edge of the Mediterranean uh, tactically for for Britain a very important stronghold during two world wars the first and the second and that kind of a history associated with it but also a big natural area and a, a, a tribe of monkeys that you dare not turn your back <laughs> on at any time and then, of course, in Spain, um, uh, just some magnificent cathedrals I saw, and I also was able to see the Alhambra. This was an Arab palace that, of course, eventually the uh, Catholic kings tried to convert into another purpose. And so you see that mix of, of Moorish architecture as well as some of the Spanish influences. And this goes back, you know, we'll argue about a building's historical significance that's 40 or 50 years old. Some of these buildings predate Columbus. Hmm. You're talking five, six centuries it really, really gives you a bit of a humble sense of your place in the world when you're in buildings of that era. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Morocco, of all of them, sounds like the most exotic. I don't know if it is or not, but maybe that's just the Hollywood perception of, uh, of how it's been presented. But boy, that sounds like one of those places to if visit before I you die. To Casablanca, then I, then I could <laughs> tell you, if, you know, if it was really play it again, Sam. But we'll we'll get there one day. Let's uh, let's move on to this study. Uh, now that you're back and um, and we can uh, once again tap into your expertise, I always uh, for those who are uh, new to the show, I always bring Marvin on when we have complex economic and financial issues to deal with because he is the one person who can explain these better than anyone else. Of course, Marvin from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. There is a new report out from a group called Watson and Associates Economist Limited that says that by the year 2026, another 68,000 people are going to call. Hamilton home. Now that to some people may not sound like all that much. 70,000 people is, you know, 70,000 people, but it's amounts to what will be 12% again of Hamilton's population. And so Marvin, considering what we are dealing with already with incredible skyrocketing housing prices and building expenses and infrastructure deficits and all this, how how meaningful is a number like this to the local economy, to the local infrastructure, to all those things? Well, and I'm going to just go back before I go forward, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm not disputing that number at all, but I can give you just a little further picture. If you were to look 15 years, so here we are in 2016, if you were to look, say, by 2030 or 2035, uh, the province is suggesting that Ontario itself is going to grow by 30% over that period of time. But they don't think the growth is going to be uniform. In other words, there will be fewer people going to the north and some of the more 
remote areas so that the GTHA, the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area, could grow by as much as 40%. So for Hamilton, that would mean 200,000 people, perhaps by the year 2035. Now, both of these numbers, the one the shorter term and the longer term, are important because, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to keep growing the way we have in the past? What does that mean? Well, we're, to some extent, sprawling. The city has grown, and not in the downtown core, wards one through five, but in the suburban areas, whether that's Stony Creek or Ancaster or the mountain wards. Are we going to keep seeing those fill out and push further into agricultural land? Uh, Again, government policy, the Ontario government's policy, says no, 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 no. There's going to be a green belt, and we're going to protect that. So we're going to set a hard urban boundary, and we're going to have to put these people inside that boundary. What does that mean? We call it intensification. So rather than building more single-family dwellings on a piece of grass and everyone having that sort of idyllic suburban landscape, that we're going to look more Toronto-like. In other words, we'll have buildings that are 10 stories high, 12 stories high, with condos. You buy your box of air, and then we'll have shared park space And we're going to see that intensification for the first time in many, many years in those first five wards, wards one through five, that had lost population through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now they're the ones that are expected to grow. This is where the intensification will happen, spurred on, and I hate to bring this up, but spurred on in part by the LRT, because what the LRT is going to do is designate nodes. These will be stops along the route. And those will be the areas that you'd want to build these condos so that everyone's got close walking distance to their stop. And as you're looking 20 years out, that's, that's the kind of activity that we're starting to think about and plan for. Is there any interpretation other than the fact that housing prices, though, which have already been going up so fast, are going to continue to? This seems to me to be a recipe to have really, really expensive homes. Well, I understand what you're saying, and, and so is the reason why housing prices going up simply some new people coming into the area? It is in part, it's also in part that we aren't building enough stock. Uh, we have a number of condo projects, and I don't want to speak um, negatively by somebody like Darko Vranich, but for instance, his, his conversion of the Royal, the, not the Royal, the uh, uh, Revenue Canada building downtown into condos, and it's a big project, we're talking about two, three hundred units, is just taking forever. And until we bring more of these units on, what's driving the price increases is a lack of supply. We have lots of demand, a lot of people who want to locate here, but if we don't increase the supply of housing, then that is inevitable. And and this is why, for instance, if I give a speech like this talking about growth in Burlington, the nice people in Burlington say, Marvin, you don't understand, we don't want to grow that fast. You know, maybe 10% population growth over 20 years. I say, well, Hamilton will be thrilled because that means those people who are coming out of Toronto looking to locate, they won't go to Burlington. They'll skip over you and they'll come to Hamilton, put more pressure on us. We saw Oakville, for instance, uh, in its planning say, we don't want to be more than a town. Never want to be more than the town of Oakville. Town, in their mind, meant capping the population at 99,000 people. So they just did not approve any new housing growth. And eventually the housing prices got so high, children of Oakvillians couldn't afford to live there. And they said, wait a minute, this isn't what we had planned. And they realized that if you just cap the supply of housing, you have nowhere to go but up in terms of the prices. So I think Hamilton's doing a better job, but we need to get more of these condo projects, not just planned and announced, but actually built and open. I think that would take some of the pressure off the prices.
We know that we've heard from City Hall a number of times that we have a $3 billion infrastructure deficit, stuff that has to be fixed that just we can't afford right now. We're behind by $3 billion. Now, if you start building a whole series of condos, there is going to be, there will be extra stresses put on the infrastructure, other things that will have to be improved or expanded or whatever. With the additional tax dollars that people would bring in by living here, would that offset that amount or would that be a net loss to have all these people move here? No, it's not a net loss. There is a gain from having that in here. But the general problem in Hamlin's situation is the source of those property taxes. I can take you back into the 50s and 60s, <clears throat> excuse me, roughly 75% of the money the city had to build infrastructure came from commercial and industrial taxes. The residential side only had to contribute 25%. Today it's flipped the opposite way around, that only 25% comes from the institutions, the commercial and industrial, 75% comes from residential. So yes, I want to see this residential growth and it will contribute money, but what we really need is to see some more of this industrial and commercial growth. And that's the one piece to this puzzle that worries me a little bit, whether we're going to have 70,000 people in, in 10 years or 200,000 people in 20 years. It's love to say we're going to have them here, but where are they going to work? And where are these jobs going to come from? Now, we are uh, a less industrial town than we were 34 years ago. We rely on health care and education for jobs, and, and I think there will be some growth in those areas. But we need more things like the Canada Bread Factory. We need more things like the Tim Hortons Roasting Factory. We need to have some of these industrial jobs uh, in the area. And I think this is why at the same time that we're talking about growing the population, we want to see, for instance, the, the former Stelco, U.S. Steel Canada lands. If, if, and I don't mean to be a negative Nelly here, but if that company isn't going to be revived, if steel is not going to be made on that property, the sooner we can get that in the hands of entrepreneurs who want to build the next generation of industry on the waterfront, the sooner we're going to have good-paying jobs for these people as they fill into our community. What about the fact that we do have an aging community, and so you are not going to have as many as much income tax? I mean, I know that goes federally or that goes provincially, but it's money that is not available to be spent, I suppose, in a lot of these different businesses. Because, I mean, we are getting up there in age. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, so I say there's three things that really are going to affect Hamilton over the next 20, 25 years. The first is general population growth, but the second one is the growth of the seniors' community. Now, I'm using the word senior as those people 65 and over, and we know today you don't have to retire at 65. Some people can't afford to retire, but many people are also choosing just not to. Their their brains don't shut off when they're 65. I know many of my colleagues at the university are choosing to work into their 70s because they're still very productive. But that chunk of the population uh, within just a few years, probably again in 10 to 15 years, is going to be 25%. One in four Hamiltonians will be that age range. What's interesting, when you study that seniors group, they, they account for something like 75% of Canada's disposable income. They've saved. This isn't just the pensions they take, but they've saved money. And when we talk to them about what they're going to do with all this money they've saved, they tell you something very interesting. They're not necessarily planning to give all of it to their children and grandchildren. In other words, they've saved all their lives. Now they want to have some fun. So I think you're going to see a wave of entrepreneurship aimed now at this seniors market, to help them, whether it's uh, tourism, you know, I'm, I'm 70 now, but I want to do a bicycling tour across Ontario, or maybe it's health tourism, you know, I, I've got a bad hip and I have to wait eight months here, maybe I'm going to go to India and they can take care of me right away. 
but whatever it's going to be, I think we're going to see a, a whole new growth segment in targeting seniors. The third, by the way, the third factor that's going to influence us is diversity. Uh, in this forecast that the government has of population growing 30 to 40 percent, we know that our own generated growth, in other words, Ontarians having children, is not going to do that. We're not producing enough children to support the population we have. Left to our own devices, the population would shrink. So the only way the population is going to grow is through, uh, uh, if you will, imports or immigrants coming to this country. Uh, fully uh, 75 to 80 percent of the growth we're going to see is going to come from immigrants. Uh, Hamilton is the third most diverse community in Canada, behind Vancouver and Toronto, and that diversity is going to grow and intensify. Here's a trick question for you. Last year, immigration to Canada, what one country accounted for the biggest chunk of immigration to Canada, Scott? I would, my first guess would be China. Yes. Not correct. That's number two. Okay. Do you want to try again? Um, uh, United States. India would be your, usually your second guess. That's number three. Number one, the Philippines. Huh. And that surprises people. Uh, we, we are taking in, into Canada, roughly 280,000 immigrants here. This, this is not including any one time for the Syrian refugees. 280,000 immigrants. Here's another number for you. 850,000 applications from people around the world who want to come into the country. So if you take 280 a year, we've got at least a three-year backlog, let alone what we're going to get over the next three years. So there's a healthy number of people who want to come here. And so what we call settlement services, helping take these people and integrate them into the community, is another growth area for us. And these are some of the challenges we're going to have going forward. It's, it's not, Hamilton is not just going to be for, quote-unquote, traditional Hamiltonians. Hamilton's also going to have to work for new Hamiltonians as we go forward. Well, and, and we just have a couple of minutes, but l- l- just talk about those new Hamiltonians for a second, because how much does all of what we've been talking about, how this city is able to deal with this influx of new people, how much does that depend on who they are? And I don't mean what country they've come from. I mean their economic abilities to be putting money into the economy rather than sucking it out of the economy. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, our studies around immigration show that immigrants are also a net positive to the economy. You know, every now and again, someone will note a, a more senior immigrant who seems to, from the moment they arrive, be in the health care system and need support. And sure, there are some of those. But if you think of some of the people, like Michael de Groot, where, who's contributed to this community, he was an immigrant from Belgium in 1950. Or if you think of Frank Stronach and his empire, uh, even Dave Braley, to some extent, these people trace their roots back to immigration, and, and oftentimes these immigrants, given a chance to flourish from whatever oppressive regime they're escaping from, can just show you some wonderful entrepreneurial talent that, that sometimes we just don't seem to produce domestically. So I don't, I don't worry about that. I think it's going to be a net positive. Sure, there's a cost initially to get through the settlement, but many of them contribute tremendously going forward. But Marvin, do you think that most of the 70,000 they're talking about, they are talking about immigrants or people who are just moving to different... I mean, they were in Toronto, and Toronto's too expensive, so we're going to go down the road a little bit no, where it's no, a little less expensive. about immigration from other parts of the okay. world. So there is some internal migration. I'll use the word migration rather than immigration. There is some migration, as you say. Some people will find Toronto too expensive or Vancouver too expensive and find another place to locate. Yes, we'll get some of that. But we're also going to be a place that people are going to choose to come to. And what happens, again, is once you have a group of immigrants established in an area, <coughs> excuse me, they lay out a red carpet and other people will come. It actually smooths the system 
for them going forward. So it is going to change, and I think if we can revel in that aging population, growing population, and diversifying population, we'll set ourselves up for a lot of good economic news in the future. Marvin Ryder, always uh, great to have you on. Welcome back. Glad you're uh, back in Canada after, after your trip, and we will uh, be hearing hopefully from you again very soon. Absolutely. Anytime, Scott.